Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Victor, I know you're listening. <laughs> we have a tremendous amount of faith listening. in you to, to fix our sound quality from our, yeah. our, our unfortunate interviewees who don't hit the record button. Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, October 27, 2021, we have a very special episode of the podcast. Yes, a very special episode indeed. We are dedicating our entire show to an interview. And that's because we were able to snag California's three top housing officials all together at once for a joint discussion. It's really because people were tired of our voices. We <laughs> just finished taping a discussion with Lourdes Castro Ramirez, Secretary of the Business, Consumer Services, and Housing Agency, Tavo Velázquez, Director of the California Department of Housing and Community Development, and Tina Johnson-Hall, Executive Director of California's Housing Financing Agency. So all three of them are relatively new in their positions under the Governor Newsom administration, and we thought it'd be great to get them all on the record discussing their backgrounds and philosophies on some key housing issues, as well as some of the biggest housing debates in the state. We got their perspectives on rent control, rental assistance, affordable housing financing, accountability for CDs to meet their housing goals, and even asked them about the impact of building market rate housing in low-income communities. We do have some bad news, though. Yes, sadly, because we wanted to go long on the interview, we are not this fortnight going to have an avocado, but perhaps we have something a little bit comparable, a little bit of schoolhouse rock on who we're talking to in the positions that they hold. So Lourdes' agency oversees housing in various other state departments. Gustavo reports to her, and his department is involved in sort of the nitty-gritty of handing out affordable housing dollars and assessing these local housing plans. And then Tina's agency is more involved in various financing programs, such as loans for first-time homebuyers, and as we get into in the interview, a new grant program for low-income homeowners to build accessory dwelling units in their backyards. That was definitely not as exciting as the avocado, but I think that (laughs) these interviews will make up for it. And with that primer, let's go into the interview. We are so excited to talk today with the state's top housing chiefs to discuss their backgrounds and philosophies and beliefs about the state's underlying housing crisis. We are joined today by Lourdes Castro Ramirez, Secretary of the Business, Consumer Services, and Housing Agency, Gustavo Velázquez, Director of the California Department of Housing and Community Development, and Tina Johnson-Hall, Executive Director of California's Housing Finance Agency. Welcome, all of you. We're going to kick this off with a couple of personal questions for each of you. And Lourdes, let's start with you. You came to your current job from San Antonio in Texas. Housing is broadly much more affordable than in California, though the social safety net is much weaker. What lessons did you take from your time in Texas that apply to California's housing situation? One of the key learnings for me was the importance of elevating housing and elevating the conversation about the importance of housing, not just from a public housing perspective, 
but from a community perspective. So one of the last leadership opportunities that I had in San Antonio was to chair the mayor's housing policy task force, where we were able to bring together a very diverse cross sector of residents and institutions to have a conversation about the housing affordability issues in San Antonio. And over the course of a year, we engaged in looking at data, best practices, and really understanding the growth of the city, then created a 10-year affordable housing policy plan for the city. And I think that one of the key recommendations in that plan that very much applies to the work that I'm doing now is around the importance of coordinating the housing system. One of the recommendations that we advanced to the mayor and the council was that, yes, we need more resources, but it's important when you have more resources to be able to coordinate these investments and these resources in a way that enables the city to be able to address where the need is the greatest. And I think that's exactly what we're doing here in California. The governor and the state legislature has doubled down on addressing housing affordability. I recognize as the secretary of this agency, the importance of coordinating across the housing continuum and working very much in partnership with Director Gustavo Velasquez, who's leading the Housing and Community Development Department, working very closely with Tina Johnson Hall, who is the executive director of the California Housing Finance Agency, and of course, working very closely with the governor and the governor's administration to advance this agenda. So Gustavo, we want to turn next to you. You came to your job from the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the federal government, where you worked on furthering fair housing issues. And that's the idea that promotes low-income housing should be integrated across communities, including in higher-income, lower-density neighborhoods. And this kind of issue was very significant or discussed, actually, during the last presidential campaign. I'm curious what you make of the claims popularized by former President Trump that these sorts of furthering fair housing policies killed the, quote, suburban lifestyle dream, in his words. I don't think any of it except the fact that they came from someone who has embraced the notion that building affordable housing, low-income housing, is going to destroy any neighborhood. Look, there's been a lot of research done about this. I was a member of the Urban Institute, a nationally recognized policy research organization before I came to California. And a lot of research was coming out during the time of the Obama administration when the secretary and I were at HUD at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. She was leading the public and Indian housing portfolio. I was leading the fair housing portfolio. And this research points to the direction that if we invest heavily in affordable housing and we invest in housing that addresses the needs of not only the unhoused, but also working poor families and individuals, we are going to have a more vibrant, economically sustainable community. That was basically the main principle of us working so hard during the Obama administration to put into place the affirmatively for the fair housing rule, to continue to invest in areas that were disinvested, where we needed place-based strategies to make sure that communities stayed in place as those neighborhoods and communities were receiving a ton of public and private investments and were facing gentrification and resident displacement. And we see that of course, playing out here in California, especially in the high-cost 
areas, but also not to forget that a lot of affordable housing across the nation had been built in those lower resource areas. So we needed to create a balanced approach to invest more resources in high and higher opportunity, opportunity rich communities. So that was the premise. The premise was always let's address this as a balanced approach and make sure that all communities have resources and housing that enables people to make choices, their choices of where they want to live. So, Tina, we understand that you lived in an affordable housing development after you finished college. How did that experience shape your perspective on housing issues? My experience was I got out of college, I got married, had two kids immediately by the time I was 26 years old, and found myself in an unpredictable situation where I was raising my children by myself. I reached out to affordable housing to avoid being homeless. And I was lucky enough that ultimately accepted my application and it wasn't easy because they were like, oh, wait a minute, you got two kids, got bad credit, oh no. And in fact, I got in only because I reached out to the then governor and said, if affordable housing is not meant for people like me, then who the heck is it meant for? Was that here in California, Tina? Yes, it was right here in California. And so they ultimately let me in And it has, without a doubt, changed my life. I decided to pursue it in a big way, first through tenant advocacy at the place where I was living. That connected me with various local councilmen who helped us navigate the affordable housing crisis. And as I learned more and got informed, I started working for a nonprofit organization that led me to work for banks. And I haven't stopped fighting ever since. It shapes and informs all the work that I do because I look at it still from the lens of a 26-year-old woman who, but for affordable housing, would have been homeless. It changed not only my life, but it changed my children's life as well. I lead with that passion. I still have it within me, and I intend to lead with that lens here at the California Housing Finance Agency. You know, you folks are all relatively new and we want a chance for folks to kind of understand your perspective and what you think about the most significant housing issues and questions that are out there. So Manuel and I divide this idea of this game. So at least one of you will have to answer true or false to a few of the statements that we put out and then explain your reasoning behind it. So I'm going to start with the first statement, and again, true, false, and then an explanation, and we're going to hold you to at least one of you having to answer this. So statement is this, rent control is a necessary part of a functioning housing system in high-cost states like California to protect tenants. The answer is yes. Rent control, given the cost of housing in California, was one of the most expensive housing markets we see anywhere in the world. Rent control can go a long way in stabilizing entire markets, but thinking about the people that benefit, you know, people that can stay in place in their communities. Sometimes, you know, families have been there for generations. We see a lot of pressure, economic pressure, in turning this market, these communities in different directions. So rent control is certainly one of those important anti-displacement tools that are in the toolbox. There are a lot of them. We could have spent hours talking about this toolbox to prevent people from being displaced. I believe that rent control 
It's a measure I worked in the District of Columbia, actually. The District of Columbia has kind of this golden kind of model for rent control, and it has worked organizing tenants and ensuring that they utilize this measure. So, yes, that's the short answer. I also think about rent control as a part of a preservation strategy. And I think about it in that context because there are a number of buildings that have affordability clauses that effectively right control rent. And it's very important that we do what we can to ensure that we're able to preserve that level of affordability. And sometimes that requires additional project-based subsidy resources from the federal level or additional state dollars. It is very important for us to do what we can to preserve the affordability, whether it's at the individual level or at the building level. All right, next statement. The construction of market rate homes in disadvantaged areas doesn't cause gentrification or displacement, but rather prevents it. It changes the landscape of housing depending upon which region. But my experience has been that market rate housing can sometimes cause gentrification. And it's interesting because Secretary Castro just shared a very interesting article with me just this week where he was sharing that in the Baldwin Village slash Leimert Park areas of Los Angeles, as an example, that community has seen incredible gentrification such that you have homeowners who have been in those buildings for many years. Those homes are now worth millions of dollars. They probably purchased it for considerably less than that. And so parts of me is saying, keep your home. But then other parts of me are saying, folks who have been in those homes for a long time, this is a primary means for them to have wealth or to live a much longer time at a comfortable level or to be able to pass that on to their children. What do you do? It's a push. It's that natural tension. I agree with Tina. I do think that market rate housing without some level of involvement from community in terms of the planning of that housing can lead to gentrification and displacement. I do think that it is important that there be investment in all types of housing across the board. But I do think it is important, especially in neighborhoods where the demographics and both demographics in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of income and income status, I think it is important to have some recognition that investment at the expense of displacement of communities is not what we want to see. We want to see investment that results in improving communities and that allows for people that have been in those communities for many years to have the opportunity to stay in those communities and not be displaced or not be priced out. It's a challenging balance. These are things that cities are struggling with every single day. And so go back to what Gustavo mentioned earlier. I think it is important as we look at the location of housing affordability, it is important for us to have this balanced approach, looking at ways to create affordable housing and well-resourced neighborhoods to bring that balance, but also looking at ways to invest under resourced neighborhoods but not at the expense of pushing people out. Quick follow-up on that. Are you folks implying that we should not be building market-rate housing in disadvantaged neighborhoods or neighborhoods at, at risk of gentrification? No, I don't think we are saying that. In fact, I think we 
believe very much in addressing the continuum of housing, housing that serves the unhoused all the way to home ownership, as well as housing that addresses the whole spectrum of incomes. Now, candidly, when you look at the last 18 years of what the state of California has been producing, market rate production has been doing quite well, as opposed to housing for very low-income people that has been produced at about 11.4% of what should have been produced. So we have to, I mean, everything we do has to be grounded on evidence, but we should continue to ensure that across the income spectrum, we're creating more housing opportunities with a focus on what the market is not producing and not producing enough of. We need to continue to support the production of housing across the spectrum. But I do think that being in state government, we also have a responsibility, right, for working in partnership with local leaders and local government to develop strategies and interventions that allow for the production of affordable housing that is affordable to members of that community that otherwise would not be able to access market rate housing. Clearly, we are short in terms of the number of deeply affordable housing units that are being produced. And so we are very mindful of that and very focused on doing what we can to move more quickly to produce more units that are deeply affordable. Proposition 13 is a necessary protection for homeowners who otherwise would pay too much in property taxes. I think we have to go to a true Californian, Tina, for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) see, this is a fun game. This is hard. I didn't realize it was going to be this hard. This is another one where there's challenges on both sides of the coins of this. There are, if you go back sort of historically, why proposition was received so much support when it was originally approved versus the unintended consequences of what's happening now. This is the challenge of policies. I think that we always have to go back and revisit policies to see what the relevancy is. But the problem here is that that policy has been around for so long that it would be difficult to make an argument to change it at this point in time. And it's in the Constitution, too. And it's in the Constitution. So what do you do? It's one of those, is the juice worth the squeeze at this point? Well, this is the first punt, so... This is the first punt. (laughs) I will say that having lived in Texas for 11 years and having owned a home in Texas, well, the price of homes may be lower than the price in California, much lower. The taxes, the property taxes that one pays... And the increase in that tax year over year over year makes it difficult to project and to anticipate how much of your income you're going to be spending year after year. So I think there is something to be said about having some level of predictability in terms of where your taxes are. Got it. So you're saying Proposition 13, good. That's how I understood your uh, response. No, I'm <laughs> joking a little bit, but it yes. Was, okay. Part number two. Right. <laughs> okay, next statement. No matter the cost, construction worker labor provisions, including union level prevailing wages and apprenticeship training programs, should be included as part of any affordable housing development in the state. When I look at the majority of the 
programs in the state that subsidize affordable housing. Prevailing wages is a part of it. I've always been a firm believer that housing is an equalizer. The housing creates the chances for people to access opportunity. And I think we can't be blind of the fact that when we are investing tremendously in housing production, I mean, we have an unprecedented level, thanks to the governor, in housing production at the moment with a $22 billion budget for the next two years, of which $12 billion is focused on programs for homelessness and another $10 billion for affordable housing. We have an opportunity here to advance multiple policy objectives across the state, including the availability, the creation of more housing. And so I'm not answering the question directly, but I am saying we have prevailing wages in a great majority of our programs, and we have to create the conditions for this incredible level of investments to really fulfill many policy objectives and make housing be an equalizer for all involved, from the first cement on the ground all the way to who lives there, who lives and how the housing rotates over the course of many, many years. I think it's important to take a step back in terms of when we have this conversation about the cost of producing affordable housing. We know that the cost has been increasing tremendously over the last 10, 20 years. And some of that is a function of the dysfunction in the housing finance system and not having enough federal dollars, not having maybe enough light tech dollars, and then having developers, both nonprofit and for-profit developers, having to pull together many different funding streams to make it work. And so I think when we look at the housing cost, we have to be careful not to fall into the situation where that it's more costly because we're having to pay more for workers. No, I think it's more costly because I think the housing finance system in general, we're not investing the way that we should be investing. We're also very laser focused at the state level to look at ways to streamline and to make it easier for developers to build at a lower cost, to have more predictability and to have less financing stacking that they have to do to reduce the costs. So I think it is important for us to figure out how to reduce that cost, but you know, being mindful, right, of what percent of the cost is represented by labor versus what percent of the cost is represented by the capital costs, by the time, by the lack of having a streamlined process. I know this is your favorite game, so I'm sure you'll be very disappointed to know that we only have one more of these left. So true or false, the California Environmental Quality Act places too many barriers on affordable housing construction. I'm going to say that I think that that is false. That's probably not the popular position. But I go back to why it was created to begin with and specifically how it has been one of the greatest tools to ensure equitable buildings throughout the different regions, that we're leveling the playing field such that all buildings and all development is looked at in the same way. And one of those ways is looking at how these buildings are impact the environment and what that might look like. That is somewhat related to the prevailing wage question that you asked. And I love how Secretary Lourdes 
put it, it's all of our required pieces to ensure that ultimately what we build has a long-term sustainability aspect, as well as we're not building something that's going to further hurt the folks that are living in those buildings. So for me, I consider it necessary. I grew up in Los Angeles where we know that there are different regions where folks did not dispose of things in an equitable way. So you've got areas in LA where people disposed of things in a not environmental friendly way. We didn't learn about it till it was too late and people were sick and losing their lives. So for me, I'm all for it. I'm all in. We had a great experiment, I think, last year with one of our signature programs of the governor, HomeKey, that created in record time and record cost than 6,000 units, 94 projects. Never has been done before to the point that the governor went to the legislature and received an additional $2.75 billion, basically triple potentially the impact of HomeKey. And arguably this housing was turned into interim and permanent housing because it didn't have, you know, an exempted CEQA requirements. Right. It did exempt CEQA. You guys went out and converted the motels into these long-term housing that that was part of the legislation to exempt from, from the CEQA process. So I think here there is an opportunity to review that and in the context of everything else that the state is building and these requirements being imposed on developments to see whether there can be some opportunity for a more kind of balanced approach in which CEQA requirements can be imposed, arguably for good reasons. But I think for us, the home key example brought to light an opportunity that I think should be further explored down the road. That's a very good point. I always say that a lot of these requirements were looked at and developed many, many years ago, and we should always be looking at ways to make it relevant to what's happening now. I think re-looking at it now is probably a good approach. Last year, myself and a colleague at the Times wrote about why it costs more in California to build affordable housing than anywhere else in the country. Some of it, of course, is land. You had mentioned, you know, capital costs and growing materials costs as well. But there were so many things we found that were within the control of the government that increased the time and the cost to build. For instance, California has five agencies that hand out funding for affordable housing at the state level, while most other states have just one. Why is the system here so complex? What are you doing about it? We have an administration today, the governor and the legislature, that have prioritized housing in a significant way by advancing legislative proposals that address removing barriers to construction of housing, to significant massive historic investments with $22 billion for housing and homelessness. The first question that I think Manuela asks is, What did I learn when I was in San Antonio that I have brought to the work that I'm doing here in California? And I think one of the things that I learned is that the coordination of these investments is very important. And in coordinating, you're also looking at ways to remove inefficiencies and to align your resources and to co-invest. And that's what exactly what we're doing right now. What we're doing is you have HCD and CalHFA and agency, Business Consumer Services and Housing Agency, working very closely to ensure that there's proper alignment in terms of our housing investments. We also have developed a very strong partnership with the state controller's office and with the state treasurer to ensure that there's alignment to the bond financing and the tax credit allocation 
we're making some good progress. Are there things that we could do to streamline and reduce costs? Are there more things that we can do? Yes. And we're working towards that. And I think one of the important efforts that's underway through HCD is the under AB 434 is the consolidation of several housing funding programs to make it easier for developers to be able to apply for financing support. And maybe I'll turn it over to Gustavo to talk a little bit more about that. Very, very quickly. For us to succeed, I think, in the homelessness and affordable housing agenda, California needs money, the right policy landscape, and accountability. And when I talk about accountability, people usually think about local jurisdiction accountability because, again, we can have a lot of state policy mandates, but at the end of the day, is in the localities where you approve how much and where and how fast housing is developed. But the accountability starts also at the state level. So we have to be very intentional about creating in our programs the environment through which we are putting money faster. We are streamlining our processes so that the development community has a housing finance delivery system that works for the market that they are facilitating to produce, affordable housing market. To the Secretary's point, view every possibility, opportunity that we have to consolidate programs to bring everything into one single set of rules, criteria, applications so that we can move this investment much faster. So streamlining is a repeated word here within the state housing departments. I think we're making progress. We're not there yet, but I think we're making progress to streamline and ensure that we have an affordable housing finance delivery system that moves much faster and that it's more nimble response quicker to the needs in the market. To pivot to a different issue here, this year, California launched a massive $5.2 billion rent relief program to help pay back missed rent during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as I've reported on, this program has been riddled with problems that advocates have been ringing bells about since the start. Documentation requirements continue to shut people out. Application presents challenges for non-English speakers and people with sensory disabilities. People who borrowed from friends, families, or even loan sharks, often the ones in the neediest of positions, have continued not to qualify. And people are going months without getting a check and moving forward with eviction anyways. So why do these issues persist and what are you all doing about them? First, taking a step back, in the history of this country, responding to this global pandemic, what Congress did, what the federal government did was historic. $46 billion to states and localities to provide emergency rental assistance. That's admirable and something to lift up. And I think it's a lesson, you know, as we look to the future. I think the second thing is many states and localities did not have the infrastructure in place at the time of the dollars were distributed. And frankly, the rules around this program were developed under the Trump administration before the Biden administration stepped in. So they were very cumbersome. I will be the first to admit that it was difficult to stand up a program very quickly under very cumbersome rules. So yes, we struggled, but that's not the narrative anymore. Where we're at right now, near 400,000 applications in the state program. We just obligated, which means we paid out 
or approved for payment, $2 billion. 85,000 households have received an average of $11,800 in check to keep them housed, to prevent eviction, to prevent displacement. And California led when it came to eviction protections. I know we struggled. I know that there were some things that we didn't do well. But the moment the Biden administration and this Treasury team began to make changes to the rules and to issue new guidance, we quickly implemented you know, changes to reduce the documentation, the paperwork, and have been, of course, also very humble about recognizing that in order for this program to succeed, we couldn't do it alone. We have a network of community-based organizations that are on the ground meeting people where they live, where they work, where they shop, where they play, to try to connect them to the program. We know we need to continue to do more, and we're trying to do our best, given the circumstances, to deliver relief and resources as quickly as possible. And when we make mistakes or when you know things don't quite go as quickly as possible, we're doing our best to rectify and move forward, all with the intention of making sure that in particularly as it relates to rent relief, that families are able to avail themselves of this emergency support and able to stay housed. Recent analyses of the impacts of accessory dwelling unit laws have found that these units are disproportionately being built in affluent communities by mostly affluent homeowners, in part because it's so hard to finance these. So banks struggle to assess the risk and provide loans, as you know. So CalHFA got $100 million in this year's budget for ADU financing. How will you avoid the pitfalls we've seen thus far and ensure that saying uh, really goes toward the people who need to build wealth? Our ADU program is brand new, but as you mentioned, we do have $100 million that we intend to use as grants for pre-development. So that's the first big difference. Oh, so not even loans? They're going to be grants? Yes, sir. They are going to wow. be grants. There will not be a loan on these folks' property. So that's the biggest, biggest difference right off the bat. The program is designed for lower income home ownership owners or what we call low equity home ownership. And we're going to increase their equity by providing them a grant. That's number one. We also see this program as a way to help Californians stay in the home ownership path and eventually become the kind of family that can help the next generation. That's another difference between us. Again, that's why we made it a grant. And then additionally, ADUs, we think, will also increase the housing stock that in our state is sorely lacking. So our target client is at or below 80% AMI. So folks who make less than 80% of income is sort of region-wide or who you're targeting with this program. Exactly. So that's very different. We're very specifically targeting what we believe are the folks who need it most because there aren't a lot of conventional resources to support them. The other part that's a little bit different is that we're working very close with lenders who know this population best. And so we actually have a a network of established lenders that we will be working with who tend to work within these communities anyways by delivering first-time homebuyer products and other things like that. So we believe that they will have a wealth of clients that we can pull aside from the ones who will likely be calling into us directly. 
One of the biggest issues facing all you folks and state housing over the next few years is the approval of uh, local housing plans. As we've sort of described many times on this podcast, every eight years, cities under state law have to set aside enough land for projected housing growth, and we're right in the thick of that process. Now, for decades, this law has been criticized as being toothless for not ensuring that fair sites for growth are represented. But now there's some new teeth, new legislation, so to speak, and a lot of new responsibility for HCD. Yet already there's been some grumbling and there was an editorial in the San Francisco Chronicle recently that touched on this, that some of the housing plants from San Diego communities have already been approved, do not account for state fair housing laws and allow some cities to claim growth that will occur on sites very unlikely to redevelop. What do you make of that criticism? Again, some of these sites will never have housing built on them, and that low-income development is being planned only for disadvantaged communities. Context here, during the last 10 years, housing production netted about 80,000 new units, far below the 180,000 units that we need just to keep up. And as you point out, we're entering a new, I don't want to get wonky here, but a new RENA cycle stands for Regional Housing Needs Assessment. It's basically the goals of how much the state of California should be producing in new housing. We're entering this new cycle, this is the sixth cycle, roughly the next eight to nine years. And as we know, the goals are increasingly, increasingly higher. The governor is very clear about our mandate for accountability. Imperative for the state to use all the tools at our disposal to hold local jurisdictions accountable to meet this housing supply that needs to be produced. As you point out, each jurisdiction has to plan under these housing elements. Recently, it's about, I think, 20 laws that have raised the bar on what it takes to have compliant housing elements. We're actually in the process right now of reviewing hundreds of them. Many of them have already been decertified. And I think a lot of people focus on the plan themselves. What I want to make sure people understand is that our accountability work, which is not new, it continues. We've taken hundreds of actions in dozens of jurisdictions to make sure that if local jurisdictions are creating unnecessary barriers to housing production, we hold them accountable. This will continue under a new accountability unit that the governor announced, gave us the resources to staff up this unit with more attorneys, more policy experts. The fact of the matter is that the work that is most important here is once cities submit and are approved these plans. The work starts of making sure that we go back to each and every one of them and check that this housing is being built, that is being built at the volume that needs to be built, that is being built at the incomes that need to be built, and that is being built in the right places, including places that advance fair and inclusive housing goals, places that advance our aggressive climate goals. That is the housing accountability work that we continue at HCD, and we are resolute, resolute to ensure that we hold jurisdictions accountable. We work with them, of course. We provide a lot of technical assistance and holding. We provide a lot of direction. But if need be, we will, we will hold them accountable. We will, if we have to go, partner with the attorney general's office. The governor did it. He did not shy away when Huntington Beach was sued by the states a few days after he was thrown into office. So we are looking at all of this right now. It's a very, very important time in our housing accountability war because all of these plans are being submitted and they are being checked. And we will follow up with each jurisdiction to make sure these plans are actually fulfilled.
Okay, so you brought up Huntington Beach, which I think is a good example, because part of this process to try to ensure good behavior, quote unquote, good behavior going forward, once the lawsuit were to happen. So the lawsuit happened, the city eventually basically backed down in the settlement to the case and agreed to zone as you folks had requested. But they recently rejected a housing project and were sued under the Housing Accountability Act by some outside actors for rejecting a housing project. I know from talking to folks in the most recent round of housing allocations, they are very upset, saying that it's too large, they don't know what they're going to do. My point is, you did the biggest hammer that you guys had, a lawsuit, and yet I don't think that you would describe these folks as being good actors now after that lawsuit's been over because they already had to be taken to court because they rejected a housing project, and they're already sort of fulminating against the new housing goals that they're facing now. And so what level of accountability is actually there when you're allowing some of these communities to continue to say no? What I can tell you is we're going to be persistent. I mean, there are jurisdictions that will be unwilling to collaborate with us. We not only have a Stixley and we also have Carrots. We just put in place a new pro-housing designation program where jurisdictions, if they take measures to streamline their housing production, to densify more, to open up more areas for housing opportunities, we will designate those jurisdictions pro-housing and they will receive incentives for more funding to create more housing. So we have a dual approach here, but. On the stick side, we're going to be persistent. There are jurisdictions that will be unwilling. We know that. But we have now, thanks to the governor, the state legislature, additional resources to have more capacity to track this work, to monitor this work, and if need be, take enforcement actions as required by state law. So persistence is the key here. That brings all our questions to a close. Is there anything that you all want to add for our vast and influential audience? Thank you for the invitation to be part of this conversation. Gustavo, as the director of HCD, Tina, as the executive director of College FA, really doing a tremendous job in terms of moving forward a very bold and massive housing agenda with really investments across the housing continuum. And I can't overstate the important role that we play in facilitating cooperation and promoting collaboration across cities, counties, and regions with you know, many of the recent policy changes and legislative bills and significant funding for housing. California is paving the way to a different future. And while we have a lot of work in front of us, our commitment is clear. This is about people. This is about communities. This is about ensuring that our state is able to come out of both this pandemic and the affordability crisis that we've been through for many years stronger and leading, creating more housing opportunities, particularly for households and families and individuals that are often left behind. So we, we thank you for the opportunity to, to be part of this conversation. Yeah, thanks, guys. We appreciate you. very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like us, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and your other favorite podcast services. Once again, doing so is very important because then new fans of us can be found. Our editor, as always, is Victor Figueroa. Thank you so much, Victor, for being who you are. I am Liam with the Los Angeles Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.